from a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. One of the little-known facts about this show is that its full name is Craft, colon, Exploring Creativity, because the idea behind it is to look at all kinds of different creativity, whether it's writers or artists, painters, illustrators, actors, pretty much anything you can think of is fair game for the show. And in the last bit more than a year, I've interviewed people in all of those different areas of artistic expression. And so today I'd like to look back on all of that and say, what is creativity? So that will be the focus of the show today, to ask different people who work in the creative fields, what is creativity? What does it mean to you? How do you express it? Where do you find it? Especially in areas that I don't have any particular talent, but I really respect, like illustration and music. So I'm going to talk to a couple people today on this hour-long craft special who have great talents in these areas. Um, So it's sort of a jealousy experiment uh, to talk to people who can do things that I wish I could do but can't. And in a little bit of shameless marketing, I'm going to bring up some of the interviews I've done with people in similar fields and talk to creative folks and get their reactions to what other people have said about creativity that I've talked to, like Neil Gaiman and Vienna Tang. So into that camp fall the partners at a Columbus, Ohio-based firm called Spork Design. Drew Robinson and Dominic LaRiccia will try to explain to me illustration and the visual arts. But first up, have you ever wondered why a conductor chooses certain pieces during a classical music presentation? What thought goes into that? Uh, How do they decide that this piece goes with that piece or responds to that piece or shouldn't be played with that piece? And that's what my focus was with Scott A. Jones from The Ohio State University. Scott A. Jones is an associate professor of music at The Ohio State University. He received his BME from Ohio State and later a Ph.D. at the University of Minnesota. He taught at Concordia College before returning to Ohio State in 2012 as faculty. He is the Ohio State University Associate Director of Bands, the conductor of the symphonic band, and the lead for undergraduate conducting curriculum. Welcome to Craft, Scott A. Jones. Thank you. It's a delight to be with you. Well, as you know, uh, today's discussion will use clips from past Craft interviews as springboards for discussion. Because your in music, I thought your reaction to Vienna Tang would be especially appropriate. She is a singer-songwriter who has released, I believe, six albums, appeared on David Letterman, has written a musical, and many other awesome accomplishments. And I talked to her about how she composed music and the way that she integrates her professional and personal life. You are, I think, just now finishing up or have finished a degree at the University of Michigan that you took three years off. I did. Almost uh, not completely off. I mean, I think you still did some touring. You did an amazing amount of composing, I think, for someone being in grad school, (laughs) someone who is in a 12-step program for grad school myself, having finished (laughs) in in 2004 and still having the uh, dissertation nightmares occasionally. I've heard that a PhD is a uh, traumatic experience. (laughs) Slice it. (laughs) And in the humanities, perhaps a a futile experience as well. (laughs) So, so tell me what impact your master's had on um, your, your musical production. Did it lead you in new ways? Because your master's didn't seem to me to be related to music. It, it's in a very different field. That's very true. 
So that fact actually had two really great effects on my relationship with music. One was that I got to step away from music and not make it such a huge part of my identity anymore because I was now a you know sustainability student. I was an MBA and an environmental science student. And I think being able to immerse myself in a completely different world basically brought me back to this very innocent place with music where I would you know procrastinate on homework um, by writing songs or by playing music. And I was basically doing it for fun and doing it in a way that there was no... I, I felt no pressure or expectations for it to be anything. Um, and that's something that I think is, is the bargain that you strike, uh, that you have to give that away when you do it for a living and you're a professional because now it has to pay your bills. Now it has to be some kind of, you know, there has to be a bit of a business plan around what you're going to do with music. So Vienna stepped away from her music in order to get an MBA in sustainability studies. And um, this showed her about the bargain that musicians make in order to make a living at music. Uh, Scott Jones, how do you reconcile what I presume to be a love for creating music with, uh, you know, earning a living by teaching other people about it? Well, it's fascinating to hear her response to and rationale for stepping away from music. I I think I'm probably pretty fortunate in that if I had to define myself um, with one word, it would be that I'm a teacher first. I mean, certainly I'm a, I consider myself a musician, but I've been afforded this wonderful opportunity to first and foremost be a teacher. And so there's a certain amount of security that comes by being employed as a teacher professionally in a school system. So when I was a K-12 school teacher, a high school band director um, before coming to the university level, there's a certain amount of security that you can count on. I know that I'm going to be employed for the nine-month school year, and in the course of that, I'm going to be teaching about and through music in that regard. But I've never had to rely upon having, like it sounds for her, to have hit after hit or to be able to um, book an engagement here and there in order to pay bills and make things go. So I think there's a pressure that's in play for her that's different for me based upon my defining myself as as a teacher in that regard. Um, When it comes to the love for music, because without question, I have a love for music that partners with a love for people and teaching. And so there's a real satisfaction for me that comes from uh, engaging human beings uh, in the process of learning and making music together that's that's satisfying to me in some ways, as I suspect that maybe uh, performing music is for her. I think that if I were, for instance, if I were driven solely by my love for music, I think it would probably make me crazy to put music in front of 65 other people and said, ready, let's try to make sense out of this, because it's just too frenetic, chaotic. But there's something about that uh, dance with human beings trying to figure one another out and music out, uh, the mess of that to me is really fascinating. Um, and I think to a, probably an individual performer artist, that would just be so frustrating because it's much more messy. It's much less direct. It's much more fraught with distractions, diversions, um, potential pitfalls and problems that take away from the communicative uh, kind of clarity or power of the message that if you're just one person, for instance, uh, kind of in charge of your own self and being in the own music that you're making in a studio um, is uh, is a, a lot. Well, the large ensemble is just much more of a uh, of a mess in that. Yeah, it seems almost counterintuitive because um, I would think that 
you go from having to be responsible for yourself as, say, a, a, a conductor to saying, you know, you're assuming responsibility for these 65 people in the uh, symphonic band to getting it right. And to getting it right mm-hmm. at a very high level because they're doing a lot of really uh, difficult pieces. Yeah, when you kind of put it that way, it kind of makes you wonder why anybody does this, you know, of <laughs> sorts. Um, because it is fraught, you know, because even day to day, the human being, we all are susceptible to how's your day been. So uh, on a given day, uh, uh, the same person coming into a rehearsal has had either really great day, which means they're firing on, on all cylinders, and another day where it's just been the worst day ever, like we all have. And that impacts certainly how they make music, how they interact with one another, how well are they concentrating. And so there's that dynamic um, and that additional variable that's in, that's in play in that regard. And that's got to complicate things tremendously, I would think, for you, because you're dealing with... Uh um, you know, 65 people at, you only have what, once, uh, twice a, once a day? We meet once, uh, three times a week. Three times a week. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've often wondered that about people who are directing, you know, you can only sort of put in so much. It's like being a coach on a football team, yeah. right? Everything that you do isn't really about the football game. It isn't really about the the performance that you're doing. It's everything you do up to that point. And you're saying, this is how I want that. That's how I want, you know, less clarinet, more saxophone. I don't know that there is a saxophone. There is a saxophone, yes. Okay. <laughs> and we love them all. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I think I, if, I think if I'm hearing you right in that regard, it's that the, the process is as much of um, the uh, ultimate performance is what I have in mind there. But that's also something which yeah. you can't control most of it. Yep, there's a certain willingness to kind of let go and to risk and, and a trust that's in play. And I guess maybe that, as I now think about it, is that the ability to trust the students who are making the music uh, when it comes time to perform. So, for instance, you've spent 10 or 12 rehearsals preparing a program and it's now concert time and in front of an audience you go and the lights come up and there is no more rehearsal and there's no more talking there's no more stopping ready set here we go top to bottom straight through not only this piece but this piece in a program as it relates to the second piece in the program and as it relates to the third piece in the program and what does this whole thing feel like and admittedly there are some things that are usually different that night than have than any other rehearsal before which is kind of fascinating and I think to a certain other kind of person would be terrifying, but uh, it's usually, especially with students here at Ohio State, it's different in good ways. It's uh, more responsive. It's more uh, flexible. It's more pliable. There's a sense that concentration is higher in some regards, and the senses are attuned in a way in a performance setting that is very different than in a rehearsal. I'm sure, like, probably for athletes it is that there's something about a game that's very different from even your very best practice. Um, and that's that's really interesting to me as well. And usually what happens is the music and the emotional impact of the music uh, is heightened by all of that. Okay. And someday we'll have a discussion about um, what people in music mean by the heightened emotional impact, because I've heard that many mm. times. And being a fairly lousy musician myself, I've always sort of wondered about how you can pluck a string, how you can you know, play um, a trumpet with more emotion. Because I'm, that's not an area of specialty of mine. So <laughs> I've always been been curious when people say that. I'm like, well, well, what does that mean exactly? Quantify that for me. Sure. Show me a graph, which uh, is, I suppose, anathema to um, people who are actually into music saying, show me a graph. But there must be a moment in which you say, you know, trumpets, I want more from you. Uh, I want 
you don't say, I want more anger. I don't want more emotion. Mm. What, how do you do that? How do you draw that out? Well, I would be delighted to have that discussion as well, but it is one of the mysteries of, I think, music making and music making with a large ensemble that there are times where I could say, all right, I think what they need to do technically is this, 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 and this. But instead, uh, out of me comes, do you remember in talking with the composer that he was saying that this part of the piece was more about just thinking about his children can you put yourself in that state of mind? And can we go back and try that again? And what's amazing is how the music changes. And I don't know that you could ever quantify all of that. I'd put it on a graph. But there's something there. And that the mystery of that to me is also um, it's just pretty remarkable that all of a sudden out of disparate numbers of people or a large number of people with different experiences and different backgrounds comes this kind of unifying sensibility that really doesn't make any sense when when you think about it critically or technically but there's a i suppose a spiritual component to that there's a an, an otherworldly kind of sense that comes into play that that is um is pretty exhilarating actually mm-hmm. well that actually ties into something else i wanted to bring up from the, the interview with Vienna Tang where she talks about some of the influence that her own life has had on her I think it's on an album you said that you tend to write slow, pensive songs more than upbeat ones because when you're happy, you're not picking apart an experience or words to that effect, which I thought of at first as sort of a, a professional hazard to being a songwriter. <laughs> um, but, but now you're suggesting that there are ways out of that professional hazard that uh, it's to pick up something even more depressing, environmental studies. <laughs> And then, and then desperately need to cling to something optimistic and upbeat. Yeah, that's okay. certainly one way to do it. Well, that's good. I'm, that sounds like a great experience. <laughs> so that, that it really was. Uh, yeah, I think the other great part of it was that it, um, you know, that that impatience with kind of slow ballad music definitely drove me to explore different kinds of ways of uh, different ways of writing. So. Like one of the songs in the 99 I wrote while basically stomping around in the shower <laughs> trying to figure out like, oh, is this some kind of like rhythm that I can write to? So tell me about the impact of your own life on choosing the music that your group performs, the symphonic band. For example, uh, this last fall you've been working on two songs that struck me as remarkably different. Song for My Children which is uh, quiet and soothing, and Eagle Squadron, which is a fast-paced march, I think, mm-hmm. yeah. it might be the technical term for it. Yep. So, And all of those are available at your website at u.osu.edu slash symphonicband for people to listen to. Well, the choosing of repertoire for uh, any particular program, quite honestly, is at times very arduous. Um, part of it is that I, I myself have my own... Um, natural inclinations to lean towards certain music. Uh, without question, I'm a person that I think came into the world and early my early musical experiences uh, are really deeply rooted in songs that are more lyrical, more slow, more meaningful, more expressive. That music to me really speaks um, deeply to who I am as a musician. Now, in balancing that part of my desire to want to... Um, program a lot of that kind of repertoire are also the needs of these human beings who are, are <laughs> I'm in charge of teaching and providing an experience for. So balancing those things is um, is part of the challenge of programming. Uh, but when it comes to, so for instance, 
the concerts, we'll play four concerts here on campus this uh, academic year with Symphonic Band, two each semester. And the programming actually will start in May for the coming school year. So I'll spend time over the summer pulling those programs together. And in some cases, it's following a theme. In other cases, it's um, uh, an idea or a concept. Like, for instance, one of the uh, themes that I will... uh, I'm planning to follow, and I've shared this with our students in Symphonic Band now, is the concept of surprise. So what is it to be surprised by music? And I think it would be actually really interesting to put an entire program together that is uh, built around that concept, so that within each piece and piece to piece to piece, there's this dramatic surprise for the listener, something they weren't expecting. Because I think surprises, uh, obviously they can be both good or bad, but there is something about being led to a moment as a listener where you think, oh, I know what's about to happen, and then something else happens that's pretty exhilarating as a as a listener. Um, but so back to the issue of, uh, of my own experiences, I think a little bit like, like what we were just hearing, there's a certain point at which you realize, okay, I know a lot about or I feel comfortable in this kind of music. What else is out there that, that can stretch me, that can cause me to think differently, to be differently? What's on the other side of that coin, that coin being me and my musical preferences? What's the opposite of that? And what's there to explore? How does that music work? How could I make that music work? Could I make that music work as convincingly as the music that's like breathing to me would work? And, uh, and in that, I, I suppose, challenge is a little bit of kind of reinventing yourself a bit that at some point we all probably professionally have to go, okay, what else is there? When you're conducting, say, we'll go back to these same two pieces, two really seemingly disparate kinds of pieces. Do you approach them really differently in your conducting style? Like, are you going to be more energetic and forceful with say a march and saying, no, that's Mm -hmm. not how I want it. I want it to be like this. Whereas you described the song for my children as I want you to put yourself in this state of mind Mm -hmm. and a much more sort of, you know, you giving the creative freedom to the students. Yeah. I I think that you've hit the nail on the head that without question, some of what the conducting thing is, is embodying the spirit of the music that you're leading at that moment. So I would, without question, am animated in a way working with uh, Eagle Squadron or any march, um, that rich uh, genre of of pieces that we have available to us in the concert band. Um, I approach it's not a conscious thing so much anymore but at some point would have been uh, those rehearsals with a different kind of energy and an energy that tends to match Um, the introduction what's interesting about marches uh, they're these lovely complete meals and that usually there's uh, a lot of contrast in a very short period of time and so you get an introduction that usually kind of uh, very often composers actually compose last that contains snippets of and, and in essence foreshadows of here's everything that's about to come in four measures. So I'm going to give you all of this stuff in essence, kind of set your ear in a way to say, you may not realize it, but you're going to hear a lot of this stuff coming uh, later in the March. And then you get a first strain in the typical March, uh, which kind of lays out a, a melody and a kind of a spirit. And then you get a second uh, strain, which is usually kind of like the first, but a little bit different. And then there's this dramatic contrast that comes in the trio, the third section, which is usually the opposite kind of energy in which everything becomes much more song-like uh, to the ex- extent that 
you can think of music opposites of music being either a song or a dance. Uh, we get a lot of dance music at the front of the march, and then there's this beautiful song that comes in the middle. And then usually there's some kind of big conflict section that comes up uh, next in the break strain. And then the final strain usually brings back the theme from the trio married with some other theme uh, that has happened earlier as well. Uh, so it's this really complete three-minute uh, listening experience and teaching experience uh, as well. Um, but my energy is definitely much more animated and much more like the introduction part of a march uh, would be uh, than it would be certainly in doing something like Song for My Children. So it sounds like you're not going to conduct Wagner before a weekend break because that gets you just too animated, too <laughs> out there. It, it can be, yeah. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> I was going to say crazy, but I, uh, you know, yeah, I wouldn't, good. I wouldn't uh, put that on Wagner. Sure. So one of the last things that uh, I want to talk about is Vienna Tang often talks about uh, using some politically charged topics to motivate herself, and when we talked, she described it like this. You've got a, a strain of some of your songs like In the 99, City Hall, and No Gringo that explore really political themes. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about your feeling when you're writing these songs, whether that kind of risk concerns you or whether you're more concerned about, say, musical experimentation. I mean, what is the thing that puts you on edge as an artist that gives you that momentum? Is it something like the politics? Is it something more like musical experimentation? What really energizes you? And maybe it's all those things. Yeah, that's a great question. It it really is all of those things. A lot of it has to do with my figuring out what I'm excited about, like what music bores me and what music excites me. And then trying to figure out like, well, what is it about these songs that I'm finding compelling? And I think a lot of it does have to do with realizing that some of my favorite artists and songs are the ones who do engage with bigger issues and tricky topics. And sometimes even, you know, right from pretty provocative and controversial points of view, but that's their vocation as storytellers, you know, to try and see things from that point of view. I'm thinking specifically like of, you know, Sufjan Stevens wrote a song about a a serial killer and how underneath he can relate to that person. And then Paul Simon has written entire albums that kind of refer to different aspects of global politics. That's the kind of stuff I'm interested in topically and lyrically. But I always come to that challenge with a lot of <laughs> with a lot of anxiety because I know that there are many ways to write really bad songs. <laughs> in a way it's sort of like trying to navigate that minefield of like avoiding the terrible songs that you could write along the way to try to get at something that actually grapples with something in an intelligent and compelling way. So Tell me about that for you. What motivates you within music? What are the things that really, I think you had mentioned earlier, um, having a, a struggle with setting up the uh, the program for mm-hmm. the music and, and thinking, okay, is this a risk? Is that not a risk? What, what pushes you as a, a conductor? I think if I'm honest, like um, probably all conductors um, – it would be very easy for me to create a lot of programs that are that are similar um uh, and large in large part driven by personality so for instance i i tend to be a pretty optimistic person a pretty glass half full kind of person and there is a lot of music that is optimistic in its tone that speaks to me uh that speaks to my life experience that speaks to the way that i feel like the world should be um and so the challenge for me is to uh realize that but life isn't all that. <laughs> life is this balance, and, and uh, it, 
the measure of a of a person isn't how things how they're how they're treating others on a day where everything's going great. The measure of that person is make everything in that day go wrong and then see how they treat people to figure that out. So life is this: you have the darkness and the light, and how um, how do those two dance with one another? How do those two juxtapose with one another? So um, for me, um, I think some of the most difficult moments in programming and actually in rehearsing and making music are um, when when a piece uh, potentially is a, is about a very dark topic. Um, and it's not about joy and it's not about celebration. It's about um, anguish and mourning and loss. And the f- fun part, I-, I suppose, in a way, if fun's the right word, is that the more life experience you have, the, the more true that music becomes. So, for instance, until having lost somebody who means a lot to you, the sense of doing a piece that uh, is um, is an elegy really doesn't make, I mean, it kind of makes conceptual sense. But until you've really had that experience of sitting, uh, you know, in, in the church pew and just sobbing over the loss of another human life, uh, the next time doing an elegy uh, has whole new meaning. And in some cases, it's a conscious thing, but f- I think it's much more so a deeply um, personal, emotional level. Uh, and the way that you move as a conductor and the facial expressions that you're not thinking about and you're not choreographing, but the way that you just come to that music and the way that you make music and what uh, what really grabs your attention now because it seems to somehow speak to that moment to you, that gets communicated somehow to the musicians in the room and they respond to that. And so there's a, a dynamic flow and energy that's in that's in play there but there's also a balance to be struck there because um the reality is is that those moments for instance so so just running with this theme of loss is that the chances are good for the students who are in the ensemble the, the people who are there as well they've experienced loss as well and you want to tap into that but not too deeply into that to the point at which somebody becomes disabled so there's a there's a fine line to be um to be walked there like I, um, there's a piece with um, high school honor bands, for instance, at, at times to time they've done that's about the Vietnam War, and that's also another one that's that's uh, kind of tricky because that's a very uh, volatile and sensitive topic, depending on who you're talking to, um, uh, and in some cases it's sensitive because there are people who have lost loved ones in that, and people who also felt like that was nothing that the United States should have ever been involved in. And it, I mean, it just on and on and on. And so finding a way to say, well, this music is about this event, but not necessarily a specific angle on it, but also being open to all of the possibilities that are there. And so finding a way in even a piece like that to be sensitive to the listener, to be sensitive to the performer, but also get to the heart of what in in particular that piece is about, which is at times it just really ugly it really an ugly event uh and how do we how do we live there but do so respectfully i guess mm-hmm. well scott a jones i want to thank you very much for talking to me today on craft about creativity and the way that you approach the uh, symphonic band at the ohio state university it's been a pleasure to talk to you a pleasure to be here thank you columbus ohio based sport design is according to its website a multidisciplinary design agency that develops and markets engaging campaigns for companies, organizations, and events. Or it's the simpler We Draw Stuff, according to 
Drew Robinson, one of the members of it. Spork Design was a creative accelerant for TEDx Columbus 2011. And co-owner Dominic Lariccia was abducted into the Society of Illustrators with a portrait of Walter White, a.k.a. Brian Cranston, as his character in Breaking Bad and featured in SOI Illustrators 55. He was also honored with a 2013 Award of Excellence by the industry journal Communication Arts for the same piece. Drew Robinson was awarded an internship at Walt Disney Feature Animation in Florida, where he worked on Beauty and the Beast. They joined me today on Craft for a discussion I'm calling Creativity. So what's that all about anyway? Welcome to Craft, Drew and Dominic. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Right. So let's start with your backgrounds. Uh, one of the what we're going to do is I'm going to give you some excerpts from craft interviews that I've done uh, recently, and you guys get to respond to that and tell me all about your feelings about creativity and the people that uh, you've worked with in the creative fields and things like that. Make sense? Yes. So, so it's sort of like a game show. Okay, I can handle that. I spoke to Veronica Roth, the author of the Divergent novels, and asked her about her background, and she responded like this. When you were writing this, uh, I mean, after you had published it and everything, what was the the beginnings for you? Like the superhero always gets uh, a great origin story. I'm curious about your origin story as a very <laughs> successful writer, right? So you're, well, you've, you've sent this off, and when did that happen for you, when your Peter Parker moment? Well, I don't know, because I'm certainly uh, not a superhero, so I don't have a very interesting origin story as a consequence. But um, I don't know. I'm, I grew up in a in a home where creativity was encouraged, and where my mother never said, "Like that's a stupid thing to do. You should be doing something more useful with your time." And so, um, at the age of eleven, I started writing every day, and I just kept doing it and trying to get better at it. And then, you know, I kept trying to finish stuff. And when Divergent came around, I just had a feeling about it. I had a feeling it could become something that people might want to read, and that I should try to find people who would facilitate it becoming that. And it worked, which is crazy, and I'm very, mm-hmm. very lucky that it did. So tell me about that. What is your origin story? And, uh, and one of the things I think that you picked up on was the importance of not being told that uh, something's bad. I think that's um, just as important as someone telling you something is good. I grew up uh, in a very small house with a lot of people and very little money, and when you're trying to carve out your identity as a little kid and you're competing with, I have uh, five brothers and we're all a year apart, and some of them are smarter, funnier, better at sports and what have you. And I think that uh, when you're all on top of each other, you're trying to like find your voice. And all my brothers could draw, but I think my I didn't have a dad telling me what I was doing was good or wasn't good, like he wasn't really around. And my mom was very supportive. Uh, supportive of of just creative thinking in general and she was always putting me in arts and crafts classes and everything like that but the first time i i would have to say my origin story the first time i realized where i had gained a little bit of separation from my brothers was when i um on the table the kitchen table there was a it looked like someone had torn out uh, a page of a coloring book and so it was just white with uh, the black lines and it was of a fireman rescuing a little girl out of a burning building and so i colored it with markers and crayons and everything and i just left it there because i was so proud of it i was like this thing's pretty nice and um so fast forward a couple weeks later i'm sitting in class and i was in second grade and they uh announced the winner of this art competition for danny lariccia which was my oldest brother who was in the sixth grade 
And I thought, oh, man, that's awesome. I didn't even know you know entered that. Sure enough, I come home, and my brother hands me this big Easter basket full of candy. And it's like, man, you won. I'd be lying to say that the gravity of me winning a contest for a sixth grader so while I was in the second grade. So you didn't credit for it? No, actually, he did take credit for it. <laughs> He knew I didn't like candy, too, so he knew that he was just going to get the candy and the credit. But it wasn't even that I realized that the educators or whoever voted on that, I'm not quite sure, picked me, my work, over people that were way older than me. It was the fact that my brother thought it was good enough. That my brother thought it was good enough to, like, hand, well, it was probably out of laziness, so he didn't have to do it. But that my, that my brother actually thought, at the very least, that I was better than him at something. And I swear I do. I'm not romanticizing the past. I do remember having that feeling of like validation of like, oh, maybe this is, maybe this is something. You know, not the only thing, but this is the maybe this is one of the things where I can kind of create an identity of okay. who I am in this in this in the household. Okay. And Drew, when at what moment did your mutant superpowers arise? Well, actually, that's where you should say. I was actually um, was it an art competition? It was an art competition in France. Um, and uh, I was uh, won the Prix de Rome. Uh, I was the youngest to win it at, at I was in fourth grade. He likes to one up me. In case you um, up on that yet. Okay. Yeah. The drawing side of it, the creative side of it. I came from a very nurturing family. Both my parents are very creative people. Uh, my father, he's a professional musician. He was accepted in the New York School of Performing Arts, and he decided not to do it. He didn't want to be a traveling musician. My mother went to art school at Washington University in St. Louis. It was a very, I came from a very academic family, but both my parents were extremely supportive. Mainly, I think partly because they knew I was so, how do I say this gently? Well, I'm, I'm OCD, ADHD. I'm a consumer. They see it. So that I think they saw that, that there's nothing else I could possibly do with draw. So they're like, please draw, just draw, just, just, just keep drawing. Here's lots of paper. And they put me in the corner and I ate crayons. And, you know, I think that they, they were very, very nurturing about that. And it was especially with music. And despite the cuts that were happening in Columbus school systems and stuff like that, I was doing all kinds of creative because I was in the school systems in the seventies when, you know, the budgets were down to nothing but high school football. So, um, my parents went out of their way to make things happen. Like I went to CCAD morning classes, Saturday morning classes, which were fantastic. And, uh, I think Dominic brought up a really good point about the validation is that your parents always are going to tell you, this is wonderful. It's, it's refrigerator worthy. It's when someone outside of your family says for you with some inside your family well, but you didn't get the you know the, but it's a different support but structure but your brothers aren't very nurturing when you're you <laughs> at least mine weren't uh when you're young so when something like that happens it cares a little so bit it more goes weight. here's a compliment bang punch cry what about your uncle though <laughs> didn't your uncle well a- my uncle was that was later on in life um but my uncle uh walker hancock was a uh who was a monuments man by the way and the funny thing about that is that he is about he was, he passed away about 15 years ago at the age of like 98. He was um, about five foot two, weighed about 130 pounds. So John Goodman could eat him in one sitting. And John Goodman played his hybrid character in the movie Monuments Men. But uh, he was a huge influence on me after, later on in life. Once I was able to appreciate the gravity, the level of work that he was doing. Stone Mountain, Georgia, busts of like, President George Bush Sr., then Robert Frost. So I had incredible influences. I was really lucky, and I really didn't take full advantage of it. Until I was older, I didn't really fully appreciate what I was surrounded by. So that's your advice, be born into the right families. <laughs> you have to be... No, that actually, was, actually, as it turns out, that was that, the last time anyone was... <laughs> 
<laughs> anyone in my family motivated me to do art. It was the quite opposite after that. No, they, uh, I think it's like you're left to your own devices when you grow up. Um, I grew, him and I grew up complete opposite. He has uh, uh, just a sister. and I don't know how competitive you and your sister were. Didn't you say – was that you who told me that you – like she liked – Garfield or whatever, Ziggy, and so you felt like you had to like something, so you just latched on to something else. She liked Garfield when Garfield was actually good, when it yeah. wasn't, when it actually was done by the artist and it was funny. So I decided I had to like something, so I chose Ziggy, which is like, oh, that's super I don't even know, it's, it's like choosing, it's like choosing the family circle, uh, now. Okay, so it's, it's literally you showed the her. worst cartoon probably ever done did you ever means, did you ever even read it you probably just cut no it but out. i cut them all out and i kept them all in stacks and i just remember just one one move in high school i looked found them and i just threw them all out i was like this is like it's like when you find your poetry from high school you read your poetry from high school and you realize that um you should be more embarrassed about yourself when i had talked to neil gaiman about some of the stuff that he's doing he's a big proponent of books on tape his take on it was that it has a lot to do with uh, allowing people to represent themselves in different genres now new genres that they wouldn't have before i've been boosting and supporting audiobooks for years because i think they are one of one of the great things and one of the wonderful things that technology has actually given us the years would be the first for the lp and with a cassette and the cd um we always had to deal with abridged books because you simply couldn't get um, full-length books. I, I remember back in the early 90s actually renting um, Huckleberry Finn, The Long Drive, as an audiobook. Right, yeah, on like 48 uh, cassettes? It was. It was about 40 cassettes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and what I love now is it doesn't matter if you brought out a book that is a five-hour audio book, a 25-hour audio book, or an 80-hour audio book. It's all the same. It's digital. It will appear on your device. You can plug it into your car. You can listen to it when you jog. Whatever you're doing, mm-hmm. um, there's an audio book, and you can be in another world. Right. And learning and listening and creating. You know, Neil Gaiman's take on it is there's so many new ways of, of listening to things and so many new ways of con- consuming things. But is that uh, something that you think of as a, how it affects you? Because as illustrators, you're very affected by technology, right? But all these evolving technologies like uh, Adobe Photoshop um, has, I think, probably changed illustration hugely. And you were in it, I think, probably right at the beginning of that. Oh, a- ab- yeah. Absolutely. You could not have picked a better example as well because... Um, we truly went from analog to digital. Being, being the age that we are, we are uh, that rare group. I mean, we were born into it. It's, no, uh, it's purely accidental, but where we have one foot planted in the analog world and one in the digital world. Uh, we were there when it kind of crossed over where people are people after us were, are pretty much married to digital and before us are kind of, were more married to uh, traditional ways of doing art especially the teachers so we, yeah it's, like i didn't do, i didn't take one computer class in college i and, took one and uh, on a mac plus yeah and my production teacher was in the class with me slowing everything down asking questions raising his hand going ah um, so that's how i mean that's how the cross it was awful. for us <laughs> and we even had we even had some people say computers were a phase there was a there was a guy I will not say his name. Um, uh, he, yeah, yeah, he, mm, mm, it's tempting, but he did say computers are a phase, and uh, 
that's interesting because then I looked at him as that but phase. To, to answer so. your question, um, that shows, and that guy was in that generation before, so I was referring to where they're a little bit more married to the traditional. And I think that if you don't accept the changes, like Neil brings up a, a great point, it's like he embraces it. And that guy is, uh, I mean, he does everything. And for him to stop yeah, and go... That was a good get. Yeah, yeah. And for him to stop and go, you know, the, these are just... Like, I don't like to think of uh, what Drew and I do. Is, I don't like to think of us as painters or designers. Those are just words that we use so people can kind of label us and figure out what we do and they, their idea of what that might be. But um, I like to... Th those are just tools, just like the computer is. So uh, I guess we're more mechanics. You, yeah, you look like a mechanic. I, I do. No, no but but I was going to work. But but it, but it really is. And so, like when I look at um, Photoshop, I try to to this day <clears throat> when I do an illustration, uh, all my illustrations now, I, I'd, seriously, I'd say ninety percent of them are uh, a healthy blend of both, where I draw and paint traditionally using traditional tools, and then I bring it on the computer. And I use primarily Photoshop to touch things up and stuff like that. And sometimes I do stuff that is purely uh, computer. And sometimes it's rare now that I do stuff that is pu uh, purely traditional. But um, at that period of time when it kind of crossed over, you, you in our business, you had to make a decision of, okay, am I going to just hold on to these you know, old theories and in, in the way of doing things, or am I just going to look at the computer? It's no different. There than was a, a time paintbrush. It was fully justified to do that. Mm -hmm. There was, there was a, a group that we worked with, um, two designers who had one computer and someone who took their ideas and put them down on the computer. And it was, and I, and we always thought that was, I was like, why wouldn't you learn it yourself? And I'm like, I kind of understand that, but we're slow. I can see that, that this is not going to be the way it goes. You have to learn it yourself. So take something like, um, the Brian Cranston, image you won the award for and what's the creative process for that where you say i want to start out with you know how did that start out did you start out on paper and you transitioned was it purely digital how did that work for you well that's actually a perfect example of of how that drew and i both work actually but um um now let's just keep with you okay because you won the award okay your I'm name's on it whatever you could leave okay i um no actually uh to answer that question i um it, that was a personal piece that wasn't actually done for a client, um, which is another difficult thing. And I think that you um, brought this up in your questions that trying to satisfy uh, your own creative impulses. And so I try to do personal work that isn't tied to money, isn't tied to clients or anybody else's um, ideas. And that just I was I was buried in the show. I thought he had an interesting face. I like to do uh, uh, realistic renderings, uh, you know, very characterized, and I just felt like drawing them. And it's, it started off as a, just a regular drawing. I drew it in pen, and it, I colored it in marker because it's quick. And I was just going to leave it at that, but then it just got to a point where I started, I started liking it more, and I started to spend more time in it, and I, started, I just painted it. I decided I wanted to paint it, and it, it probably took like three weeks. And then uh, it got to a point where it started. I actually liked it. I was like, "This looks good," and I started adding things to it to make it more conceptual. After the fact, like it wasn't part of the original concept of it. And then I brought it on a computer just because I felt like uh, Photoshop could help tighten it up a little bit more. And um, in what ways does Photoshop tighten up? Um, the, well, what first, do you mean by tighten up? Well, first of all, you could explore ideas 
in Photoshop that you can't do as quickly, and that's pretty obvious for anybody that does that works in our industry, just for, for the simple fact of the undo button. Yeah, Command Z. Yeah, the fact that you can try something, you can Command you can Z. waste a half an hour on something, and and if it doesn't work out, you can. You also you can, can make co- multiple copies and say, I like I like the way this one's going. Yeah. Problem is, you give yourself too many options sometimes. But yeah, you anyway. have to you have to learn how to hem yourself in, which is like if you're doing a personal piece. Um, it's very easy to like not have any restrictions and then therefore you're just kind of organically floating off into nowhere and your piece ends up being very muddy. Um, But Photoshop, I think, affords you to kind of explore some of those avenues for a little bit and decide, oh, I put an hour into that. It doesn't really look that good, but I don't have to go and scrape off paint now. Yeah, you don't don't have to scrape off binary code. I don't have to start over. And uh, so Photoshop, um, I think a lot of people outside the industry in particular think that uh, computers are a way of cheating because I've noticed when I tell when people ask me how I do things and I tell them I, I you know I, I just did that in colored pencil I feel like they have more respect for when I tell them like yeah I did I did that in Photoshop they're just I don't know I just, I just like get this, oh you press the Brian Cranston filter yeah like, like yeah that's what we did and I'm, I just always want to look at the art like, machine you have Photoshop which what, what does your paintings look we like have, <laughs> but even in the analog age that is the, the ignorance of people on the outside which you stop answering the questions that people ask um, when I worked on at Disney, I used to work in the fishbowl. There was a tour down there before they dismantled the, the traditional animation and moved everything to California. Um, uh, but, uh, um, there was a, in this fishbowl, like I said, we were on the full tour. So it was like, we, you could see the process and it was even, there was even an animated narrated by Walter Cronkite and Robin Williams, um, series of animation, uh, that, that was, that was showing, uh, how the process worked. And they had moved the order of the studio around a little bit, but pretty much it was in the same order, and it kind of explains everything. And so you get these guys going through there, and they're over, t- they're, they're talking over the narration, they're telling their, you know, their wives. It's always a guy. It's always a guy. You can just tell it's an alpha male person. You know, I don't know what what this, you know, I could go off on all kinds of stuff there, but always an alpha male telling his family how it actually works. So I made the mistake of walking out one time of the studio after one of these guys came out and he goes, I'm an architect. I could do that. And I thought, I'm not claiming that I could do architecture, but my thought at the time was, yeah, give me a a straight edge and a pencil. I'll draw a house or a bridge or a building. I do it anyway. I just don't, you know, make it structurally sound in my, but the thing about it is like this, what it is, is that the ignorance is, is that. Literally, I think, and I've heard this, people, the animators would go out into the fishbowl and listen to people talk, and they would say things like, um, then they put it in the art machine. In the art machine. And the art machine. Okay. And you think about it, and you're like, <sighs> and I think that's what happened when computers were introduced. There's been three, there's been a couple phases, especially for people like us who do rapid sketch and storyboard, or, or like I do more of the storyboard drawing side of it. Um, which is rapid sketch, which is what animation, which is why uh, I was awarded the internship at, at Disney is because I can draw fast and accurate and it's rough sketches. It's the storyboards that you see at the opening of uh, now presenting the Disney feature and you see the wall of drawings and they're drawn very, very quickly to get the point across. And it just, it just, the, the idea is that um, you, you just have to get the concept out. So that, that skill set is, is also a gift again, People don't understand that 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 computers are just a tool. They they yeah. they really are just a tool in the sense that it's a great tool. 
don't get me wrong. And, but when it was introduced initially, there's been a couple phases of that. There's been three phases for us as storyboard artists. There's been set two phases, I would say. We're going through it again uh, with computers. When computers were first introduced, we had a lot of independent clients, not agency clients. Independent clients go, we don't need you anymore. We have creative. We have the creative. Wasn't the creative suite at the time. We have uh, Quark, whatever, which is now dissolved. PageMaker. We can do the layouts ourselves. We can do the. But they could. They didn't have the eye of a designer. Now we're going through a phase with computers where there's all these pr- templates and and all this kind of stuff, stock. which kind of they, there's all stock images and templates, and people can really they can really put together some nice stuff. Um, with storyboard, it started with. Um, well, now that we have, um, we're going to use photography, but the client was not, couldn't be wed to something that was so permanent. They would get hooked on the details of the photograph and not the softness and the sort of general concept of a, of a sketch. Then they, uh, then a, a program called poser came out where literally they could pose characters and put them together and sort of do, do these animatics and that kind of chopped into our work a little bit and then they came crawling back to say um and i say crawling back i mean that that just sounds kind of insulting but they, they came back and said um we just need you to draw a picture because a client said that it looks a little too realistic or it looks a little too this or that they just want to see, get the idea across because it's easier for the it does a disservice to the creative it does a disservice to the client when the client's sitting there focusing on the color of someone's shoes in an ad campaign for a car you know what I mean? Or whatever it is. So it's like it, the, the computer for us has been just, just that a very elaborate and very, very, it's a very important tool. Oh, but at absolutely. the same time, though, it's, inc- it's incredible what you can do with it. And you, there are some things that you can cheat at. It feels magical, but it's not, there's no magic wand that you can wave over something. It, 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 it you seems, still need the eye. Yeah, you, you need the eye and you need the talent. Um, anybody who's doing anything exciting, whether it's, whether there's just a, a, a old school uh, uh, atelier uh, oil painter, or there's somebody who just strictly just design on the computer, they still have to have those skills. They have to have the foundation, usually in drawing. Uh, they have to understand form and contour and value and color relationships, and they have to understand the you know typefaces and how you know the letting and the tracking, how things really look, as opposed to like. All of us have the just capabilities on our, computers phone, yeah, on our phones to, to do page layout, basically, or to manipulate photographs in some in some way. But to to really understand even how to crop an image is composition. I mean, yeah, yeah that, it's, it's it's amazing too. It didn't, and and uh, the computer can't do that. Yeah, it, it, it just can't do that. And just like in any uh, uh, creative endeavor, whether you're an actor, a comedian, a musician. Um, I do, getting back to that uh, Malcolm Gladwell outlier thing, I do think that out of those three components, the, uh, the having some talent, the hard work, and the luck, if I were to think, if I were to favor the, I'd favor the second one, where the hard work, where if you put in the, if you put in that time, Agreed. and you really, really, I don't care what, it's like a lot of these uh, people that seem like they're overnight successes, and I'm talking about people that are really, really successful, like your, um, take an industry, um, um, Stand-up comedy, you take uh, uh, Ray Romano, Roseanne Barr, Jerry Seinfeld, Dane Cook, Louis C.K., uh, any of these people. Um, and some of these people are making literally hundreds of millions of dollars in syndication from their TV shows. And a lot of people think that they were just they did one spot on Carson or whatever and they got a uh, – 20 years living give, out of the car. Or they're giving out TV deals <laughs> yeah. at the airport. Yeah. And it's like, no, Ray Romano lived with his parents till he was like 30. 
Louis C.K. did stand-up for 20 years before he became a household name. You know, so it's like, and I feel like now that, getting back to the technology thing, now that these guys can't even develop their voice without somebody putting it on their phone and sticking it on YouTube, you know, what, you know how many times Louis C.K. bombed? You know what I mean? But he was able to bomb. He was able to get in his car and not make any money and drive all the way out to Possum Ridge, Arkansas with his friend and split on a hotel and probably make 20 bucks in 15 minutes and probably bomb. And and he had to still love it enough to keep doing it and keep doing it. And 20 years is a long time. 15 years is a long time to do something and not make a lot of money at it and have people basically not really telling you you're that good. You're good enough to get up on the stage, but... You know, we, no TV deal for you or no whatever. And maybe you have to supplement your income by no becoming a writer. But a lot of times they supplement their incomes by being a writer for a TV show or for, you know, Conan or whatever it is. But in our world, there's a lot of parallels between, uh, I think, a lot of creative jobs because ultimately you have to do decide to do something that you really love doing. Or you decide you have to do something that makes money, that makes a living. <laughs> Yeah, but at the or same, both. no, I thought you, do, we're, you we're, were the we're, business person, yeah. Dominic, that, that came in. Well, I, I've actually, uh, I am the business. Person. I actually have really, really focused on uh, trying to. It happened more. It happened when I was twenty, and then it happened when I hit forty, um, and I don't know what happened between there. But it, it really hit me that I wanted to start doing more things that I truly enjoyed. Like I still was in my field doing stuff that. You know, we weren't digging ditches, but at the same time, like I really wanted to narrow it down to what it was that I really loved to do and what I what I got into it in the first place. How did you know that down? This is going to sound corny, but um, I found it very difficult to get out of bed some days. It sounds like I was uh, battling with some sort of depression. Probably was. I don't know. I didn't uh, go to see anybody about it. But I, uh, we were still uh, making good money doing uh, uh, creative things, but I didn't feel satisfied. And I think I'd done... When you when you grow up with very little money, um, I feel like I, I felt like I kind of sold out in the beginning. Like, I, I, I had this fantasy of what I thought an illustrator should be and it was more closely tied to what Norm Rockwell was and and things like that and then I found myself doing all this um, uh, work that wasn't as in that neighborhood anymore in one minute oh god I could do it tell me about the most important thing that you want to tell uh, a student at CCAD about creativity you got one minute I'm going to ask Dominic first and then you Drew so, Dominic, what's your one I'm minute? starting to panic. Go ahead. Don't ever think that you know everything. And don't ever think that hard work. I, I would rather have a kid with limited talent and tons of ambition over a kid who, I mean, you could have all the talent in the world, but if you're not willing to work really, really hard at it, you'll never get good, let alone great. And you're just wasting your time. If I mean, if you want to have a creative life and get paid for it, you have to put in the work. So I would say uh, respect the the, the work, work aspect, aspect yeah, of, the hard work, of doing the art time. where it's it's not always going to be fun. And the time you have to put in to be good, really good at it, you have to respect that. Okay, and that's your time. So now, Drew, you've got to, one minute. I will piggyback on that because I do agree that that is that. But also another thing too is I learned this when I was down at Disney. It was it was one of these moments where um, 
uh, a man named Dan Gracie, an animator at Disney, who I have still not contacted him about this since 1991. But literally, I did this animated segment of a ballerina and uh, um, for when I was an intern, and it was a practice thing, and we had the, the it was very antiquated uh, equipment, but I could see the pro how it was how it was going. And he literally walked up to me, and I did not know that I did not know this man. Um, he walked up to me, and he just picked up stacks of my drawings and started throwing them out. And I was like, hey, hey, I, I, I love, I love those. You know, mm-hmm. so he was like, you can't, you, you're not allowed to do that. There's a law. Like you, they were, seriously, I was like, I've never had that done to me before. Like someone walking up and just going wrong. So and don't then, be precious. It's like, don't fall in love with your drawing. Don't fall in love with your concept. That if you can't, you can always draw it better the next time. You can always draw it better the next time. But, it did make the piece better. <laughs> I try to keep to a minute. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's a cruel exercise to, it's, it's to spring on you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you should have did it earlier, <laughs> <laughs> or gave us three minutes. Right. Yeah. Uh, in in forty five minutes, <laughs> your most succinct advice. I'll take the first one. Well. Um... <laughs> All right. Drew Robinson and Dominic Lavicia, I want to thank you very much for being with me here today on Craft. Again, the uh, business is called Spork Design, based right here in Columbus. Sporkdesign.com. Website, new. Check it out. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this hour-long edition of Craft. If you have, please go to www.crafttheshow.com, where you can listen to previous episodes and watch some of the YouTube videos. So be sure to tune in to WCBE 90.5 FM on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. for our weekly broadcast. Until next time, this is Doug Dangler. Be creative.